Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is episode 69 and I'm your host Paul. This week's show is entitled The Secrets of Belly Button Fluff. And other in-depth stories we're looking at include An ancient language of universal symbols is discovered And scientists believe that artificial life could be created within five years. From the damninteresting.com The Death of Grigory Rasputin And Have Milky Way's cycles influenced Earth's biological history? Those and other stories on episode 69 of Origins. And our first story today comes from the www.dailygalaxy.com and this article was posted by Rebecca Sato. Ancient Language of Universal Symbols Discovered Over the last several years, similar petroglyphs have been identified on as many as five continents. They all date from roughly the same time period. In the late 20th century, Archaeologists discovered a collection of symbols carved in stone as petroglyphs in the Negev desert of Israel that appeared to be writing. Dating of these symbols showed that they were made over an extended period of time, beginning around 1700 BC. This strange collection of symbols was first examined by Dr James Harris, a petroglyph expert and archaeologist from Brigham Young University. He identified the alphabet as being a proto-Canaanite system, which was successfully translated by using Old Hebrew or Talmudic phonetic sounds. Earlier, William McLone, an amateur archaeologist and retired space engineer, discovered the same collection of symbols carved in heavily patinated stones surrounding the southeast town of La Junta, Colorado. Dating of the patina corresponded to the same era as the writing found in Har Karkam in Israel. The petroglyphs in Colorado were photographed and posted on the internet. Within a few years, images of similar petroglyphs were sent to the site where the images were hosted, ViewZone, by archaeologists and historians from many different global locations. This included a huge collection of writing from the Republic of Yemen at the site of the Palace of the Queen of Sheba. Strangely, both the writing in Colorado and Yemen spoke of a similar event, possibly related to the sun, which was prophesied to change human civilization. Subsequent translations of sites in Oklahoma, Australia and South America have added more details about this future event. The majority of the petroglyphs have already been verified to be of ancient origin, which makes it quite puzzling to experts. 
How did they all have the same language and tell the same story on opposite ends of the globe? Perhaps our ancient ancestors travelled more than previously thought possible. Research is currently being conducted to further validate the authenticity and common features of the writing. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 69, you'll see a couple of photos that are appropriate to the article. Artificial life could be created within five years, and this is from the telegraph.co.uk website. Laboratories across the world are closing in on a second genesis, an achievement that would be one of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of all time. Professor David Diemer of California University said although building a new life form from scratch is a daunting task, he is confident it can happen in five to ten years. He said, the momentum is building, we're knocking at the door. A synthetic, made-to-order living system could produce everything from new drugs to biofuels and greenhouse gas absorbers. Opponents of the controversial research claim the technology could lead to machines becoming almost human. But there would be no safety issues for a long time, as any initial organisms would be very primitive and need large-scale life support in the lab, reports the new scientist. The finishing line could be in sight after geneticists Professor George Church and Dr Michael Jewett of Harvard Medical School told a synthetic biology conference in Hong Kong that they had synthetically created part of a cell called a ribosome. The breakthrough offers hope that they could create an entire cell, something Professor Church believes would be a relatively minor challenge. He said, There's nothing you'd expect to go wrong, the way we expected things to go wrong with the assembly. However, according to Dr Anthony Forster of Vanderbilt University, Tennessee, who was also creating a synthetic living cell in a test tube with Professor Church, until you actually try this, you won't know. Having said that, we know cells can do it, so we should be able to do it sooner or later. And from the news.bbc.co.uk website, an early Leonardo portrait has been found. A sketch found in one of Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks could be an early self-portrait, experts believe. The drawing had been obscured by handwriting for 500 years before being discovered by an Italian scientific journalist, Piero Angela. After months of restoration work, the image was aged using criminal investigation techniques and compared with older self-portraits of Leonardo. The findings were revealed on Italy's RAI television channel. In a statement on RAI's website, Mr Angela said he initially discovered what looked like a nose underneath writing in Leonardo's Codex on the Flight of Birds notebook. Painstaking restoration work revealed an image of a young to middle-aged man with long hair and a light beard who appeared to be absorbed in thought. Mr. Angela said he compared the image with known later self-portraits of Leonardo and consulted facial surgeons and police forensic experts, all of whom agreed there were strong similarities. Professor Carlo Pedretti, a world authority on Leonardo's studies who worked on the project, said he was perfectly convinced that the image was of the artist. If confirmed, he said, the image would be of great importance to the study of Leonardo's work and thoughts. And if you visit the show notes and then click on the link to episode 69, you'll find in this article a short video showing what the researchers have found in Leonardo's work.
and from thenewscientist.com, an article by Kurt Kleiner. A crab chemical could give cars a self-healing shell. You might never have to fear for your car's paintwork again if a new kind of polyurethane that is able to heal its own surface scratches makes it to the market. Small scratches to the surface of the material close up in only a few minutes when the material is exposed to the ultraviolet light of sunlight. This lifelike healing occurs because the damaged polymer molecules around the edges of a scratch use the energy from the UV to form new crosslinks and recreate the network that makes up the material. The material could make a good top coat for an automobile, says Marek Urban, a polymer science at the University of Southern Mississippi, Hattiesburg, who led the study. Previous self-healing materials have mostly used some form of liquid epoxy that is encapsulated in spheres or fibres or delivered by an engineered vascular system. When the material is damaged, the epoxy is released into the fissure and sets when it contacts a hardening agent in the material. Taking a different approach with their new self-healing polymer, Urban and his team combined polyurethane with a molecule made up of chitosan, a carbohydrate found in the shells of crustaceans like crabs and lobsters. The researchers modified the chitosan slightly with the addition of the structures composed of four carbon atoms called oxetane rings. It is the oxetane rings that give the material its ability to heal, says Urban. When a scratch is made, some of the rings are broken, leaving chemically reactive free ends. However, while he has worked out which bonds are involved in the reaction, the exact details of the chemical process are so far unknown. Exposure to UV light creates reactive spots on sections of the chitosan molecules, which then combine with the broken oxetane rings to form new chemical crosslinks that close up the damage. The process appears to begin at the bottom of a scratch, pulling it close like a zipper. Urban says that scratches about 10 micrometres wide and 50 deep, just visible with the naked eye, heal over after 30 minutes of exposure to UV light. The fact that the process starts at the bottom of a scratch suggests it will work for larger scratches too, he adds. Urban says that the material could be useful for a number of applications, including vehicles and furniture or electronic devices like cell phones. Anything you can think of, he told New Scientist. If you scratch it, let it sit in the sun for some time, and it's cured. I think this is a great new technology, says Michael Kessler, a materials scientist at Iowa State University but he said it isn't clear how thoroughly the material would heal from deeper and wider scratches. It's a first step, he says, pointing out that the material needs to have other desirable characteristics for different applications, such as heat tolerance or hardness. From the damninteresting.com website, an article written by Josh Harding on January the 29th, 2006. The Death of Grigory Rasputin. If you have kids under 10, you will probably remember the highly inaccurate, if not entertaining, film Anastasia. You should also recall the scene where Rasputin, in an attempt to get the young Anastasia, sinks glub, glub under the ice, meeting his demise and then melting away when she stomps on his magical crystal thingy. 
As gruesome as he is in the animated movie, the death of Grigory Rasputin is far more spooky. The man just didn't want to go. Rasputin had been tied in the immortality of history to the ill-fated Romanov family. Some may even say that he was the cause of their destruction. Whatever you may think about him, powerful mystic or drunken fruitcake, he wormed his way into the hearts of the imperial family and stuck there like a tick on a camel. You might think it odd that a family rich and powerful would welcome as a close advisor and friend someone as coarse and odd as Rasputin. He prayed with the family, referred to the Tsar and Tsarina as Papa and Mama, he fraternised with all their friends, his every need was provided for. But why the love? In Russia, even as recent as the first part of the 20th century, certain people were given misplaced respect or honour. One group were called the Erodovi. They were insane or handicapped and wandered around talking or screaming to themselves. The other type were called Astartsi. Both were considered holy people. Rasputin was considered the latter. He was adored by the royal family, loved or endured by their friends, especially if one wanted to remain a friend, and hated by the extended family, government and religious leaders. Rumours about him ran wild throughout the country. He allegedly dabbled in prophecy, could heal the Tsar's son's haemophilia, influenced policy dictated government appointments and sackings, directly or indirectly, and there were even rumours of him canoodling with the Tsarina and daughters. Depending on what you have read and heard, what is truth and what is fiction is a matter for deep speculation. In any case, the extended family was really sick of his meddling and dangerous influence. Therefore, some of them decided to take matters into their own hands. On the night of December 17, 1916, the great Duke Dmitry Romanov, Prince Felix Usupov, Vladimir Purishkovich, a member of the Russian Parliament, and Dr. Lazaret invited Rasputin to the Usupov Palace under the pretense of meeting, and according to one historian, to heal, Felix's wife Irina. Upon arrival, Rasputin was taken to a dining room in the basement. He was told that Irina had some guests and Rasputin was to rest and drink tea until the guests left. Rasputin was offered pastries and wine, which he initially refused. This somewhat threw the prince into a panic. He told the other conspirators, who were waiting in another room off the stairs, that animal is not eating or drinking. When Felix returned, however, Rasputin had opened the wine and began to drink. After drinking a couple of glasses, he showed no signs of having been poisoned. After a while, he may have started feeling something because he asked for tea. Then he stood, walked around the room, then asked Felix to play the guitar and sing. For two hours, this nightmare continued. When Felix checked in with his co-conspirators next, he was pale. He said that Rasputin had eaten and drank the poisoned food and still nothing had happened. When he again returned to his guest, the only signs of the poison affecting him was that he was burping and had some excessive salivation. Nerves were beginning to give way. Felix decided to end it. He took a revolver and while Rasputin was looking at a fancy cross, shot him in the back. Rasputin gave a bestial cry and fell to the floor. Dmitri and the doctor allegedly went for the car and to destroy Rasputin's coat and boots. They were not destroyed. In the meantime, Felix wanted to see Rasputin again, so he went and took another look. The body was still warm, with small drops of blood coming from the wound. He lifted the body by the shirt and shook it and dropped it again to the floor. He then noticed that the left eye started to open, then the right eye. Suddenly Rasputin leapt from the floor with a devil's look in his eyes and a wild cry and attacked Felix. Felix struggled for a moment and broke free, 
Rasputin fell again to the floor. The prince ran, calling for the revolver again. When they returned, Rasputin was crawling up the stairs. He made it out and began to run through the snow near the fence, crying, Felix, Felix, I'll tell everything to the Tsarina. In a panic, Purishkovich missed twice with the revolver, then biting himself on the wrist to make him concentrate, shot Rasputin in the back, then again in the head. Rasputin fell, holding his head. Felix began to beat Rasputin with a rubber truncheon. Finally, Purishkovich had him pulled off the body. They took the body back into the house and discovered that Rasputin was still alive. He wheezed with each breath and was able to look at them through one eye. Finally, Dmitri and the doctor returned. The body was wrapped in a cloth and taken by car to the Neva River and dumped in. That, at least, is the version that Felix Ustapov gave in a book he wrote from exile in Paris in the 1920s. Historians throw doubt on points of this version. Number one. The reason the wine did not poison him was that it was a weak mixture. The poison in the pastries did not affect Rasputin because he never ate meat or pastries or other sweets. It was not Purishkovich who shot Rasputin, but Great Prince Dmitri. Purishkovich and Yusupov covered for the Great Prince. Everyone believed it was Dmitri, but the fact could not be argued with the other two pleading guilty. Even then, Dmitri was exiled to Paris. When the body was retrieved two days later from the river, it appeared as if Rasputin had tried to claw his way out from the ice. He died from drowning after being unsuccessfully poisoned, shot three times and beaten. He was buried in secret to avoid desecration. Thus ended Grigory Rasputin. And from the dailymail.co.uk website, an article by Tom Knox. Do these mysterious stones mark the site of the Garden of Eden? For the old Kurdish shepherd, it was just another burning hot day in the rolling plains of eastern Turkey. Following his flock over the arid hillsides, he passed the single mulberry tree, which the locals regarded as sacred. The bells on his sheep tinkled in the stillness. Then he spotted something. Crouching down, he brushed away the dust and exposed a strange, large, oblong stone. The man looked left and right. There were similar stone rectangles peeping from the sands. Calling his dog to heel, the shepherd resolved to inform someone of his finds when he got back to the village. Maybe the stones were important. They certainly were important. The solitary Kurdish man on that summer's day in 1994 had made the greatest archaeological discovery in 50 years. Others would say he made the greatest archaeological discovery ever. A site that has revolutionised the way we look at human history, the origin of religion, and perhaps even the truth behind the Garden of Eden. A few weeks after his discovery, news of the shepherd's find reached museum curators in the ancient city of San Liofa, ten miles southwest of the Stones. They got in touch with the German Archaeological Institute in Istanbul. And so, in late 1994, archaeologist Klaus Schmidt came to the site of Gobekli Tepe to begin his excavations. 
As he puts it, as soon as I got there and saw the stones, I knew that if I didn't walk away immediately, I would be here for the rest of my life. Schmidt stayed. And what he has uncovered is astonishing. Archaeologists worldwide are in rare agreement of the site's importance. Gobekli Tepe changes everything, says Ian Hodder at Stanford University. David Lewis Williams, Professor of Archaeology at Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg, says Gobekli Tepe is the most important archaeological site in the world. Some go even further and say the site and its implications are incredible. As Reading University Professor Steve Mithen says, Gobekli Tepe is too extraordinary for my mind to understand. So, what is it that has energised and astounded the sober world of academia? The site of Gobekli Tepe is simple enough to describe. The oblong stones, unearthed by the shepherd, turned out to be the flat tops of awesome T-shaped megaliths. Imagine carved and slender versions of the stones at Avebury or Stonehenge. Most of these standing stones are inscribed with bizarre and delicate images, mainly of boars and ducks, of hunting and game. Sinuous serpents are another common motif. Some of the megaliths show crayfish or lions. The stones seem to represent human forms. Some have stylized arms, which angle down the sides. Functionally, the site appears to be a temple or ritual site, like the stone circles of Western Europe. To date, 45 of these stones have been dug out. They are arranged in circles from 5 to 10 yards across, but there are indications that much more is to come. Geomagnetic surveys imply that there are hundreds more standing stones just waiting to be excavated. So far, so remarkable. If Gobekli Tepe was simply this, it would already be a dazzling sight, a Turkish stone henge. But several unique factors lift Gobekli Tepe into the archaeological stratosphere and the realms of the fantastical. The first is its staggering age. Carbon dating shows that the complex is at least 12,000 years old, maybe even 13,000 years. This means it was built around 10,000 BC. By comparison, Stonehenge was built in 3000 BC and the Pyramids of Giza in 2500 BC. Gobekli is thus the oldest such site in the world by a mind-numbing margin. It is so old that it predates settled human life. It is pre-pottery, pre-writing, pre-everything. Gobekli hails from a part of human history that is unimaginably distant, right back into our hunter-gatherer past. How did cavemen build something so ambitious? Schmidt speculates that bands of hunters would have gathered sporadically at the site, through the decades of construction, living in animal skin tents, slaughtering local game for food. The many flint arrowheads found around Gobekli support this thesis. They also support the dating of the site. This revelation that Stone Age hunter-gatherers could have built something like Gobekli is world-changing, for it shows that the old hunter-gatherer life in this region of Turkey was far more advanced than we ever conceived, almost unbelievably sophisticated. It's as if the gods came down from heaven and built Gobekli for themselves. This is where we come to the biblical connection and my own involvement in the Gobekli Tepe story. About three years ago, intrigued by the first scant details of the site, I flew out to Gobekli. It was a long, wearying journey, but more than worth it, not least as it would later provide the backdrop for a new novel I have written. But then, on the day I arrived at the dig, the archaeologists were unearthing mind-blowing artworks. As these sculptures were revealed, I realised that I was among the first people to see them since the end of the Ice Age. And that's when a tantalising possibility arose. Over glasses of black tea served in tents right next to the megaliths, Klaus Schmidt told me that, as he put it, Gobekli Tepe is not the Garden of Eden, it is a temple 
in Eden. To understand how a respected academic like Schmidt can make such a dizzying claim, you need to know that many scholars view the Eden story as folk memory or allegory. Seen in this way, the Eden story in Genesis tells us of humanity's innocent and leisured hunter-gatherer past, when we could pluck fruit from trees, scoop fish from the rivers, and spend the rest of our days in pleasure. But then we fell into the harsher life of farming, with its ceaseless toil and daily grind. And we know primitive farming was harsh compared to the relative indolence of hunting because of the archaeological evidence. When people make the transition from hunter-gathering to settle agriculture, their skeletons change. They temporarily grow smaller and less healthy as the human body adapts to a diet poorer in protein and a more wearisome lifestyle. Likewise, newly domesticated animals get scrawnier. This begs the question, why do we adopt farming at all? Many theories have been suggested, from tribal competition to population pressures, to the extinction of wild animal species. But Schmidt believes that the temple at Gobekli reveals another possible cause. To build such a place as this, the hunters must have joined together in numbers. After they finished building, they probably congregated for worship but then they found that they couldn't feed so many people with regular hunting and gathering. So I think they began cultivating the wild grasses on the hills. Religion motivated people to take up farming. The reason such theories have special weight is that the move to farming first happened in this same region, these rolling Anatolian plains were the cradle of agriculture. The world's first farmyard pigs were domesticated at Kayonu, just 60 miles away. Sheep, cattle and goats were also first domesticated in eastern Turkey. Worldwide wheat species descend from einkorn wheat, first cultivated on the hills near Gobekli. Other domesticated cereals such as rye and oats also started here. But there was a problem for these early farmers, and it just wasn't that they had adopted a tougher, if ultimately more productive, lifestyle. They also experienced an ecological crisis. These days, the landscape surrounding the eerie stones of Gobekli is arid and barren. But it was not always thus. As the carvings on the stones show, and as archaeological remains reveal, this was once a richly pastoral region. There were herds of game, rivers of fish and flocks of wildfowl. Lush green meadows were ringed by woods and wild orchards. About 10,000 years ago, the Kurdish desert was a paradisiacal place, as Schmidt puts it. So, what destroyed the environment? The answer is man. As we began farming, we changed the landscape and the climate. When the trees were chopped down, the soil leached away. All that ploughing and reaping left the land eroded and bare. What was once an agreeable oasis became a land of stress, toil and diminishing returns. And so paradise was lost. Adam the hunter was forced out of his glorious Eden to till the earth from whence he was taken, as the Bible puts it. Of course, these theories might be dismissed as speculations, yet there is plenty of historical evidence to show that the writers of the Bible were talking of Eden, were indeed describing this corner of Kurdish Turkey. In the book of Genesis, it is indicated that Eden is west of Assyria. Sure enough, this is where Gobekli is cited. Likewise, Biblical Eden is by four rivers, including the Tigris and the Euphrates, and Gobekli lies between both of these. In ancient Assyrian texts, there is mention of a Beth Eden, a house of Eden. This minor kingdom was 50 miles from Gobekli Tepe. Another book in the Old Testament talks of the children of Eden, which were in Thealassar, a town in northern Syria near Gobekli. The very word Eden comes from the Sumerian for plain. Gobekli lies on the plains of Haran. 
Thus, when you put it all together, the evidence is persuasive. Gobekli Tepe is indeed a temple in Eden, built by our leisured and fortunate ancestors, people who had time to cultivate art, architecture and complex ritual before the traumas of agriculture ruined their lifestyle and devastated their paradise. It's a stunning and seductive idea, yet it has a sinister epilogue. Because the loss of paradise seems to have had a strange and darkening effect on the human mind. A few years ago, archaeologists at nearby Keonu unearthed a hoard of human skulls. They were found under an altar-like slab stained with human blood. No one is sure, but this may be the earliest evidence for human sacrifice, one of the most inexplicable of human behaviours, and one that could have evolved only in the face of terrible societal stress. Experts may argue over the evidence at Keonu, but what no one denies is that human sacrifice took place in this region, spreading to Palestine, Canaan and Israel. Archaeological evidence suggests that victims were killed in huge death pits, children were buried alive in jars, others roasted in vast bronze bowls. These are almost incomprehensible acts, unless you understand that the people had learned to fear their gods, having been cast out of paradise, so they sought to propitiate the angry heavens. This savagery may indeed hold the key to one final bewildering mystery. The astonishing stones and friezes at Gobekli Tepe are preserved intact for a bizarre reason. Long ago, the site was deliberately and systematically buried in a feat of labour every bit as remarkable as the stone carvings. Around 8000 BC, the creators of Gobekli turned on their achievement and entombed their glorious temple under thousands of tons of earth, creating the artificial hills on which that Kurdish shepherd walked in 1994. No one knows why Gobekli was buried. Maybe it was interred as a kind of penance, a sacrifice to the angry gods who had cast the hunters out of paradise. Perhaps it was for shame at the violence and bloodshed that the stone worship had helped provoke. Whatever the answer, the parallels with our own era are stark. As we contemplate a new age of ecological turbulence, maybe the silent, sombre, 12,000-year-old stones of Gobekli Tepe are trying to speak to us, to warn us, as they stare across the first Eden we destroyed. Well, I know it's been a couple of weeks since the last show, and in that time I've received a fair bit of feedback through Podcast Alley and emails. I'll just read a couple, but recognise the senders of the others. This one says, Thank you for doing this interesting and diverse podcast. I've become addicted to it. Can't wait for the next episode. And that was submitted by christy 25 top Paul, I stumbled across your podcast three weeks ago, and it has quickly become one of my very favourites. As a new father, I seldom have time to check my favourite science websites for news and updates as of late. I really do appreciate that you have taken the time to research all of those stories and read them in calm, low-key manner in an ambient atmosphere. It makes me actually look forward to time alone in the car when I'm on my way to work or the store, etc. I find Origins to be entertaining, thought-provoking, professional-sounding, and all-around well-thought-out. All I can say, really, is, well done, Paul. Kindest regards, Christopher Tarpley of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the USA. Well, thank you, Christopher. I can remember back to when my boys were tiny, and time alone is really, really appreciated. And from the Podcast Alley site, I'd also like to thank SHOW50, Landsync, and btaylor.pch for their reviews on that site. And skipping across to some emails, I found your podcast tonight and love it. 
The podcast is top quality and I am so proud and pleased it is from Queensland. Long may your podcast and your download rate climb. And that was from Shelley and she lives in Toowoomba, which is a city which is about 110 kilometres west of where I live in Brisbane. It's a lovely place, it's elevated up on the top of our mountain range that's near the coast here and it's called the Garden City. Well, thank you Shelley, that comment is really appreciated. And I also received an email from David Anderson and he was so taken with the Panati's extraordinary origins of everyday things that he ended up buying two books, one for himself and one for his mother-in-law. What a nice fellow. And from Randy in Dayton, Ohio, I just discovered your podcasts at TalkShoe and absolutely love them. Well done. Nice musical background and great production. Thanks for spending a lot of time to entertain the whole world. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for your feedback. And remember, if you'd like to do it, it's best done through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And the email is origins at origins.info. And from the www.telegraph.co.uk website, an article by Patrick Sora. The Secrets of Belly Button Fluff. In what must be the ultimate exercise in navel-gazing, an Austrian scientist has solved the mystery of belly button fluff. After three years of research, George Steinhauser, a chemist, has discovered a type of body hair that traps stray pieces of lint and draws them into the navel. Dr. Steinhauser made his discovery after studying 503 pieces of fluff from his own belly button. Chemical analysis reveals the pieces of fluff were not made up only of cotton from clothing. Wrapped up in the lint were also flecks of dead skin, fat, sweat and dust. Dr. Steinhauser's observations showed that the small pieces of fluff first form in the hair and then end up in the navel at the end of the day. Writing in the journal Medical Hypotheses, he said that the scaly structure of the hair enhances the abrasion of minuscule fibres from the shirt and directs the lint towards the belly button. The hair's scales act like kinds of barbed hooks, he said. Abdominal hair often seems to grow in concentric circles around the navel. The researcher from Vienna University of Technology also asked friends, family and workmates about their own belly button fluff. Dr Steinhauser established that shaving one's belly button will result in a fluff-free navel, but only until the hairs grow back. Other suggestions for keeping the navel fluff-free include wearing old clothes, as they tend to shed less lint than newer garments, which can lose up to one thousandth of their weight to the belly button over the course of a year. A body piercing can also be used, with belly button rings particularly effective at sweeping away fibres before they lodge. Dr Steinhauser, whose other projects have included monitoring the erosion of his wedding ring, said, The question of the nature of navel fluff seems to concern more people than one would think at first glance. We hope we have been able to provide information for doctors when they are next confronted with the simple question of why some belly buttons collect so much lint and others do not. An earlier Australian study of samples from 5,000 people concluded the typical carrier of navel fluff to be a slightly overweight middle-aged male with a hairy abdomen. The Australian researcher said, The reason it is usually blue is that we mostly wear blue or grey trousers, often jeans, and when these rub against the body, the fibres often end up finding their way to the navel. Not all belly button fluff is blue, however. In the curious case of Australian hospital worker Graham Barker, much of his fluff is red, even though he rarely wears the colour. Mr Barker has been collecting his own navel fluff in jars every day since 1984. The achievement has won him a place in the Guinness Book of Records for the world's largest collection of navel lint. 
Boy, and I bet the women go for these guys. And from the dailygalaxy.com, have Milky Way's cycles influenced Earth's biological history? Horoscope enthusiasts will be happy to hear that a grand cosmic force does indeed seem to be responsible for controlling the direction of all life on Earth. However, this grand cosmic cycle has more to do with extinction than finding a tall, handsome stranger. Early last year, research revealed that the rise and fall of species on Earth seems to be driven by the undulating motions of our solar system as it travels through the Milky Way. Some scientists believe that this cosmic force may offer the answer to some of the biggest questions in our Earth's biological history. The University of California, Berkeley, found that marine fossil records show that the biodiversity increases and decreases based on a 62 million year cycle. At least two of Earth's great mass extinctions, the Permian extinction 250 million years ago and the Ordovician extinction about 450 million years ago, correspond with peaks of this cycle, which can't be explained by evolutionary theory. Elsewhere, a team of researchers at the University of Kansas came up with an out-of-this-world explanation for the phenomenon. Their idea hinges upon the fact that stars move through space and sometimes rush headlong through galaxies or approach closely enough to cause a brief cosmic tryst. Our own star moves toward and away from the Milky Way's centre and also up and down through the galactic plane. One complete up and down cycle takes 64 million years, suspiciously close to the Earth's biodiversity cycle. Once the researchers independently confirmed the biodiversity cycle, then they proposed a novel mechanism whereby which the Sun's galactic travels is causing it. It's no secret that the Milky Way is being gravitationally pulled towards a massive cluster of galaxies called the Virgo Cluster, which is located about 50 million light-years away. Adrian Mallet of the University of Kansas and his colleague Mikhail Medvedev speculate that as the Milky Way rushes towards the Virgo cluster, it generates a so-called bow shock in front of it that is similar to the shock wave created by a supersonic jet. Our solar system has a shock wave around it, and it produces a good quantity of the cosmic rays that hit the Earth. Why shouldn't the galaxy have a shock wave too? Mallet asks. The galactic bow shock is only present on the north side of the Milky Way's galactic plane because that is the side facing the Virgo cluster as it moves through space and it would cause superheated gas and cosmic rays to stream behind it, the researchers say. Normally, our galaxy's magnetic field shields our solar system from this galactic wind but every 64 million years, the solar system's cyclical travels takes it above the galactic plane. When we emerge out of the disk, we have less protection, so we become exposed to many more cosmic rays, Mellet has said. The boost in cosmic ray exposure may have a direct effect on Earth's organisms, according to paleontologist Bruce Lieberman. The radiation would lead to higher rates of genetic mutations in organisms or interfere with their ability to repair DNA damage. In this way, the process could lead to new species while killing off others. Cosmic rays are also associated with increased cloud cover, which could cool the planet by blocking out more of the sun's rays. 
They also interact with molecules in the atmosphere to create nitrogen oxide, a gas that eats away at our planet's ozone layer, which protects us from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays. Richard Muller, one of the UC Berkeley physicists who co-discovered the cycle, said Mellet and his colleagues have come up with a plausible galactic explanation for the biodiversity cycle. If future studies confirm the galaxy biodiversity link, it would force scientists to broaden their ideas about what can influence life on Earth. Maybe it's not just the climate and the tectonic events on Earth, Lieberman said. Maybe we have to start thinking more about the extraterrestrial environment as well. From the www.reuters.com, an article by Ben Herschler. Horses were ridden and milked five and a half thousand years ago. Horses were first domesticated on the plains of northern Kazakhstan some five and a half thousand years ago, one thousand years earlier than thought, by people who rode them and drank their milk, researchers said on Thursday. Taming horses changed human history, influencing everything from transport to agriculture to warfare. But experts have struggled to pinpoint when and where it first happened. Now archaeologists think they have the answer. After finding the world's oldest horse farm among the Kazakh people of the ancient Botai culture. Remains of bones, teeth and shards of pottery used to store mare's milk all indicate horses were selectively bred and exploited for domestic use east of the Ural Mountains, around 2,000 years before they have known to be used in Europe. Alan Outram from Britain's University of Exeter said the new findings published in the journal Science changed understanding of how early societies developed. Once you have horse riding, you've got much greater transport and trade capability, as well as potential advantages in warfare, he said in a telephone interview. If it was happening this early, then you've got to think about those forces for social and economic change happening earlier too, and it is possible that there are yet earlier sites we haven't found. Archaeologists have suspected for some time that the Bowtie people were the world's first horsemen, but previous sketchy evidence has been disputed, with some arguing that the Bowtie simply hunted horses. Now Outram and his colleagues believe that they have three conclusive pieces of evidence proving domestication. They found that the leg bones of ancient Bowtie horses were similar to later Bronze Age domestic horses and very different from wild ones, suggesting breeding by humans. They also identified clear markings on the horse's teeth indicating they wore bits or bridles. And finally, an analysis of organic residues in broken pots found traces of horse's milk. Mare's milk, usually fermented into a slightly alcoholic drink called kumis, is still drunk in Kazakhstan.
And from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, another random article. Mary had a little lamb, 1830, Boston. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. These are regarded as the best-known four lines of verse in the English language. And the words, Mary had a little lamb, spoken by Thomas Edison on November 20, 1877, into his latest invention, the phonograph, were the first words of recorded human speech. Fortunately, there is no ambiguity surrounding the authorship of this tale, in which a girl is followed to school by a lamb that makes the children laugh and play. The words capture an actual incident recorded in verse in 1830 by Mrs. Sarah Josepha Hale of Boston, editor of the widely read Ladies' Magazine. Mrs. Hale was also editor of Juvenile Miscellany. When she was told of a case in which a pet lamb followed its young owner into a country schoolhouse, she composed the rhyme and published it in the September-October 1830 issue of the Children's Journal. Its success was immediate and enduring. I'm broadcasting. A couple of stories from the worldwide weird. The first comes from Tokyo. A Japanese doctor has apologised after saying that people should smoke themselves to an early death to save the country money on elderly care. It is clear that medical costs will increase if non-smoking spreads, the doctor said last week, according to Ida Hospital in Kawasaki City. It's better people smoke a lot and die early. The man whose name has been withheld made the comment at a gathering of doctors, the hospital said. The hospital president has reprimanded him severely, said a public relations hospital official. He said it was a careless remark and sincerely regrets it, the official said, adding that he was being sarcastic as the doctor is a smoker himself. It was an outrageous remark that should not come from a doctor who is supposed to protect people's lives and health, he said. The smoking rate for men was 39.5%, still high among developed countries, but half the rate of four decades ago, according to a survey last year by Japan Tokyo Incorporated. The rate for women was 12.9%, down from 15% in 1968. And from Charleston, West Virginia, would-be robbers take note. Don't use your debit card during a hold-up. A West Virginia man who police say attempted to rob a convenience store instead ended up buying a soft drink with his debit card, ultimately leading to his arrest. Sean Thomas Lester, 33, told the store clerk he had a gun and wanted all the money in the register. But the suspect got flustered when a customer walked in and the clerk told him to pay for the soft drink. Lester handed over his debit card and then signed the receipt, John Doe, and left without any cash. Police traced the debit card and found Lester. And boys, this is one to make your eyes water. An Indonesian villager had to be rushed to hospital after a horse bit off one of his testicles during a freak attack. The 35-year-old man was unloading sand from a horse-drawn cart at a construction site in Sulawesi earlier this week when the attack occurred, Indonesia's state-run news agency Antara reported. A witness said the animal suddenly lunged at the man, sinking its teeth into his crotch. Shocked bystanders loaded the man into a car to take him to hospital, before one noticed a piece of flesh on the pavement. Luckily the horse did not chew up or swallow his testicle, but spit it onto the pavement, the bystander was quoted as saying. 
so I picked it up and brought it to the doctor at the hospital where the victim was being treated. It was not known whether doctors attempted to sew it back on. The 70-year-old owner of the horse, Budai, said the animal was trained but sometimes turned wild and had bitten in the past. A British man, fed up with his wife's complaints, advertised her for sale and got a number of offers. Nagging wife, no tax, no MOT. Very high maintenance, some rust, wrote Gary Bates, 38, in a small ad in Trade It, more usually used to buy and sell cars or household goods. Bates, a self-employed builder from Gloucestershire, southwest England, snapped after his wife Donna got on his nerves while she was watching television and decided to place the ad as a joke. She was nagging me for doing something small while she was watching some rubbish on TV, so I just thought I'd put an ad in to get rid of her. I didn't think anyone would ring up, but I've had at least nine or ten people calling about her. It's gone mad. There was no one I knew, just people asking, is she still available? The couple only married last year, and Bates said his 40-year-old wife, whom he advertised in the magazine's free-to-collect section, along with some of his fishing tackle, initially gave him a bit of an ear-bashing. But he said she's seen the funny side of it now, though. Hopefully. And today's final article comes from the www.theaustraliannews.com.au website. Researchers find the remains that support a medieval vampire. Italian researchers believe they have found the remains of a female vampire in Venice, buried with a brick jammed between her jaws to prevent her feeding on victims of a plague which swept the city in the 16th century. Matteo Borini, an anthropologist from the University of Florence, said the discovery on the small island of Lazaretto Nuovo in the Venice Lagoon supported the medieval belief that vampires were behind the spread of plagues like the Black Death. This is the first time that archaeology has succeeded in reconstructing the ritual of exorcism of a vampire, Borini said. This helps authenticate how the myth of vampires was born. The skeleton was unearthed in a mass grave from the Venetian plague of 1576 in which the artist Titian died on Lorazetto Nuovo, which lies around three kilometres northeast of Venice and was used as a sanatorium for plague sufferers. The succession of plagues which ravaged Europe between 1300 and 1700 fostered belief in vampires, mainly because the decomposition of corpses was not well understood Marini said. Grave diggers reopening mass graves would sometimes come across bodies bloated by gas, with hair still growing and blood seeping from their mouths and believe them to be still alive. The shrouds used to cover the faces of the dead were often decayed by bacteria in the mouth, revealing the corpse's teeth, and the vampires became known as shroud eaters. According to medieval medical and religious texts, the undead were believed to spread pestilence in order to suck the remaining life from corpses until they acquired the strength to return to the streets again. To kill the vampire, you had to remove the shroud from its mouth, which was its food like the milk of a child, and put something uneatable in there, said Barini. It's possible that other corpses have been found with bricks in their mouths, but this is the first time the ritual has been recognised. While legends about blood-drinking ghouls date back thousands of years, the modern figure of the vampire was encapsulated in the Irish author Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula, based on 18th century Eastern European folktales.
Well, that concludes episode 69 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Much of the music for the podcast came from music.podshow.com, which is the Podsafe Music Network. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback for the show, it is greatly appreciated. And the best place is through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And my email address is origins at origins.info. Anyway, that's all for now, so it's bye for now.